0: So, ladies and gentlemen, um, good afternoon, welcome to the LSE. Uh, my name's Sandy Pepper, I'm a professor uh, in the Department of Management um, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you today to uh, listen to Laszlo Bloch uh, from Google, who's uh, a guest of the Department of Management and who I'm going to be in conversation with uh, today. So welcome, Laszlo. Thank you. Um, just let me uh, give you a bit of an introduction to Laszlo. Um, He is Google's first ever President of People Operations, um, and this includes uh, all areas of attraction development and retention for Googlers, uh, Google employees around the world, um, of which there are now more than 50,000 in 70 offices. Uh, Laszlo was appointed to this role at the young age of 33. Uh, During his tenure, Google has been recognised over a hundred times as an exceptional employer, um, including the number one best company to work for in the UK, Ireland, the US, Japan and Brazil. Um, His post for LinkedIn on the biggest CV mistakes has been read by over two million people since September 2014 and was the second most read article on LinkedIn in 2014. Uh, Laszlo's earlier experience spans executive roles at General Electric, um, McKinsey and Company, um, startups, uh, nonprofits, and acting. Um, he briefly co held the world record for Greek Syrtaki dance. That's Is right, that right? Very, very briefly. With uh, 1,671 other Google employees, um, and Laszlo also owns a lot of comic books. True, very true. Uh, So, uh, today um, we're going to be talking about HR at Google. Google receives more than 2 million unique job applications every year. Um, It's more difficult to get into Google than it is to get into Harvard or Stanford. Um, Laszlo uh, recently authored The Ultimate Guide to Attracting the Most Talented Candidates and How to Ensure the Best and Brightest Succeed. That's this book, and we're going to be talking a bit about that today. Um, and so on. Um, so, um, just let me deal with a few bits of housekeeping. The, for Twitter users in the audience, uh, today's event is hashtag LSEGoogle. Um, please put your phones on silent. Um, and after um, Laszla and I have had a conversation, there'll be an opportunity uh, to ask questions from the floor. Um, and finally, um, at the end of the lecture, um, if, you would like, if you have copies of Laszlo's book and you would like him to sign them, he'll be signing copies for 15 minutes or so at the end of the lecture. So, uh, Laszlo, um, let's start off with your book. Um, and perhaps you could just tell me, why did you write the book? Are you con- and are you, Were you not concerned that Google's secrets were going to be revealed to the world? Uh, I, I was very concerned. Uh, I, a lot
1: of people at Google were concerned. Um, but we, we actually we have a history of sort of giving away stuff uh, that other companies would consider incredibly strategic. So for example, uh, we have Google Maps. And you have companies like Airbnb and so on that are built on the back of our Google Maps infrastructure. And we sort of you know give it away in some cases, just you know, charge a nominal fee in others. Uh, we had this book scanning operation for years and years and years and years. And we are scanning out of copyright books. And, when, and there were no restrictions on what anyone could do with it. So when Amazon actually launched their Kindle, their entire back catalog was comprised of books we had scanned. And, you know, God bless them, they built a great business out of it. So the idea here is that um, if we can do more good for the world by sharing something, then by keeping it for ourselves, it's worth sharing. And I wrote the book because... I had this realization that we actually spend more time working than we do anything else. You know, if you add up, nobody works a 40-hour week anymore, so you spend more time working than you do sleeping. You spend more time working than you do on hobbies, studying. You spend more time working than with the people you love the most in your life, which is kind of awful to think about. And for most people, the experience of work is pretty miserable. And at Google, we figured out some things that make work, you know, somewhere on the range of tolerable to great. And we discovered a lot of other companies that have done similar things in very different industries. So we wanted to share kind of here's the science behind it and here's how you, whether you're just a team member or whether you're, you know, a CEO or what have you, anywhere in between, uh, can take some of that and make work
0: better for yourself. Okay, so you, 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 you look so skeptical. (Laughter) I'm, 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 I'm listening, we okay. will develop this as we go along. Okay. So let, let's begin to talk about hiring, if we might. Um, uh, I mean, you, you know, you're a big name company, you're hiring exceptionally talented, exceptionally bright people, and yet you believe, according to the book, that the, some of these principles apply to, to any company. Mm-hmm. So tell me a bit about that.
1: Yeah, so one of, the, one of the core tenets of hiring at Google is, a manager, a hiring manager, should never make a hiring decision. Because as a hiring manager, you have all these incentives that actually cause you to compromise on quality. So, for example, if you're, if you're hiring an administrative assistant, initially, you want really high quality. But if you go six months, you'll, you'll settle on anybody, like anybody who can make the phone stop ringing, can help you think, and get things done. And so your focus on quality declines. You also have pressures on you, like you have a client, and they have a nephew or a niece, and maybe this nephew or niece is an idiot but they really want you to give this kid a job because nobody else will and they're an important client, so you give them a job. And then everyone else in the company looks at this person and says, why am I working so hard? So it's important to take hiring authority away from the manager because the manager has all these incentives to compromise on quality. Um, And what we do instead at Google is we hire by committee. So the manager interviews, your peers interview, subordinates will interview you, you write everything up and it goes to a separate committee that makes the hiring decision. And the rationale for that is not only to avoid these kind of negative consequences, but you actually make a more objective, less biased decision by doing that. And that results in higher quality
0: employees. So, um, you know, you're famed for being uh, a successful startup, um, growing huge, being quick and nimble, um, and yet your hiring processes seem to take quite a long time. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Would you like to say a bit more about that?
1: Yeah, so um, the good news is they, they're a lot faster than they used to be. When I joined in 2006, it took six to nine months to get hired by Google. Uh, my own process took about that long. I had 25 interviews, you know, a bunch of flights cross country to meet people. Um, and actually, by the end of it, I, the last round, they asked me to come back and meet with Larry, Sergey, and Eric after I'd done all these trips. And I, I said, I'm not doing that. Like, you guys know me. I know you well enough. I'm not making another flight, which was such a Dumb thing, because, you know, you get a chance to meet, like, these historic figures. Like, you, of course, take it, unless you're an idiot. Um, <laughs> nevertheless, they hired me, and, um, and we got the hiring process down to an average of about 45 days. Um, and the two biggest factors that cause it to be that long are, number one, actually, the scheduling from the first interview to the second, so working with the candidate. Um, but the second is, people just don't like writing interview feedback. So we have to drag it out of them sometimes. Um, but we've also, we've tried hiring people in just one day. So we went to some universities in India and made offers in one day. And what's interesting is the candidates there told us, we don't trust your process. <laughs> yeah, it happened too fast. There's no way you got to know me in just one day. Um, so you know, we want to get less than 45, but it's
0: probably going to be more than one over time. So one of the things that's impressed me reading your book is um, how you use analytics to, to test things. Um, and, uh, you know, you use academic research to design your a- analytics. Um, is this the kind of thing you've, you've tested, your hiring processes? Yeah,
1: actually. So underpinning, you know, the problem with a lot of people practice, and not just HR, not just people operations, but sort of management, is we actually we don't know that much about how to do it, right? Um, we think we know how to build good teams, and there's literature about, oh, teams go through these four phases... It's not really broadly tested or proven. People talk about performance management. There's years and years of research, and it all basically says goals are important. It doesn't say how often to set them. It doesn't say how often to measure performance. It doesn't say anything about incentives. And so what we're trying to do is as much as we can build on academic research and then test it in the real world. So when we redesigned our performance management system, we did all the research, uh, came up with a bunch of different models. We took 6,000 people and actually had them use eight different performance management systems, while the rest of the company ran on our old performance management system and used that to figure out what was actually better in terms of justice, perception and actual justice, in terms of distribution of outcomes, in terms of uh, accuracy and precision, and then we changed the company. But our thesis is that you actually have to do this, because otherwise people are just kind of going, "Uh, here's how I did it, and I think it works. And you actually can run a company better than that.
0: Yeah, good. So could you tell us a little, a little bit more about the performance management system? So OKRs, is that right? Objective.
1: Yeah, yeah objectives and key results. Okay. Um, so we actually have, uh, when we manage performance, we actually kind of have several interlocking systems. The, the biggest is um, objectives and key results. And this was something that uh, we got from Intel. So Intel had used this for years, and John Doer, who was an Intel employee before becoming a leader at Kleiner Perkins, the venture capital firm, and a board member at Google brought it to us. And the idea is very straightforward. You have an objective, and then you have key results by which it's measured. So objective is grow search usage, and the key results would be not just volume of usage, but time spent on the page, and, or time spent off the page in our case, because we want people to leave our site as fast as they can, quality of results, and so on. But Larry sets an annual set of OKRs for the company, Larry Page, our CEO, and quarterly goals. And every quarter, everyone in the company sets their own goals as well. And they're transparent. They're visible to everyone else in the company. And then each quarter, you assess yourself against your goals. And that's visible as well. So what ends up happening is, you know, a typical strategic planning process. When I was at GE, you know, it's sort of two six-month cycles. And as soon as one ends, you start planning the other one. And it kind of runs forever. Here, we don't do that. We sort of set the goals. And they're loosely coupled. And over a couple quarters, everybody gets tightly in sync. Because you can see what's changing. But we don't have a lot of you know, mandatory up and down kind of process. And then that has only a loose connection to your actual performance ratings, which has only a loose connection to actually your bonus and compensation and so on.
0: Okay. Um, well, I'm very interested in pay. We were just talking about it just now. One of the things that um, I teach to my students about the importance of fairness mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to pay. Now, you have this nice phrase in your book about uh, paying unfairly because it's more fair to do so. So would you just like to tell me a bit about that?
1: Yeah, so the the conventional view, I don't know if it's, I expect it's not your view, but um, based on your work, but the the conventional view is there's sort of human performance follows this normal distribution, or HR departments will say there's a top 10%, a bottom 10%, there's this vast unwashed middle, you have to fit a distribution, it's garbage. Um, human performance actually follows what's called a power law distribution. Um, and the best metaphor for that is if you look at professional sports, uh, and this works really well in the U.S. I'm going I'm to try it here. We have this thing called basketball. Um, and um, it's exactly like cricket, except I know nothing about cricket. Um, and I don't follow football. Um, but the idea is there's a guy, so there's uh, LeBron James, who's, phenomenal. Who's, a, who's an amazing football player.
0: Uh, They're all, they're all... Who's like the
1: best football player today? Wayne, Wayne Rooney?
0: This is very disputable.
1: Uh, Bessie, Bessie? Messi, Messi. Messi. Oh yeah, okay. So Messi, I presume, makes way more money than the average football player. And everyone looks at it and kind of says like, well, it's a lot of money, but eh, you know, kind of makes sense, way better than everybody else. If you look at all kinds of different fields, and there's cool research by these professors O'Boyle and Aguenas, and what they found is that in field after field, human performance follows this power law distribution where the very best people are way better than a normal distribution would predict. And there's way more people performing at lower levels, so instead of a nice bell curve, you have sort of this big lump, and then this long, long tail with lots and lots of people performing at super normal levels. And in fact, when you do the math on that, and you draw the average, the best people are so much better that they actually pull up the average, such that most people are actually below average. And that's okay, it's just statistics, right? And so what most companies do, is they say, well, my best person is worth 20% more, or 30% more, I'm going to pay them a salary that's 20 or 30% higher than average, and I'm doing great. But your best people are 50% or 100 or 200 or 500% better than average. You know, in software engineering, both Bill Gates and our former head of engineering, Alan Eustace, say that a great engineer is worth 300 to 3,000 engineers. So it'd be madness to pay 30% more. So we instead argue, I argue, you should pay them twice or three times or five or 10 times average. And superficially, that's gonna feel weird. I mean, if we're both professors and you're making, I don't know how much professors make, but let's imagine, I'm an average professor making... Not as
0: much as Lionel Messi. But not a,
1: Okay. <laughs> Let's imagine I'm making, I don't know, 50,000 pounds a year and you are making 500,000 pounds a year. That actually superficially feels unfair, but you may actually be that much better than me. And if so, you should be rewarded because otherwise you have incentives to leave. And that's why the best people tend to jump from company to company because you give them a reason to leave when they can get what they're worth on the market.
0: Yeah, okay, very good. So, so um, Google's famous, of course. You di- you, you're the expert. Do you disagree? No, I don't disagree. Is dis- that totally I, crazy? I, no, I, um, I don't disagree. It's not totally crazy. Okay. Um, and there is, there is definitely something about uh, contribution and, uh, and pay, and organisations that have very rigid pay structures um, underestimate the contribution that some people okay. make. So I can I can buy that i
1: to take that as enthusiastic endorsement from the London School of Economics. <laughs> 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 That's going to be on the front of the book, the next edition.
0: <laughs> so you're famous, of course, for all the ancillary things that go along with working at Google. You know, the games and the free meals. Uh, so, so how important is that? So none of that stuff matters.
1: I, I argue that if you took away the beanbags, the lava lamps, the free food, it would still very much feel like Google. People would still want to work there. People would still enjoy it. Um, We do those things for a number of reasons. We provide the free food because, actually, it's modeled on Stanford University. You know, Larry and Sergey used to like going and having lunch in the cafeteria, and you have long tables, and you end up bumping into a bunch of strangers. And sometimes, not every time, but sometimes you have an interesting conversation. And that's what we try to engineer in our environment. Um, But the proof that it's not about that is... um, I don't know, if you in the U.S. there's a grocer chain called Wegmans. And Wegmans, uh, it's a northeast U.S. grocery chain, and people are fanatical about it. And they have 1% profit margins, 1% or 2% grocers, compared to ours of 30%. Most of their employees have a high school education. Um, you know, we have graduate students, PhDs, and so on. Um, It's a non-tech industry. It's family-owned. It's local. It's everything. It's the complete opposite of ours. And yet, people feel the same way. They're just as excited, just as passionate, even though they don't have free meals and things like that. Um, Your John Lewis chain has some similar attributes to that. And it's because people are treated like owners and united in, and this will sound maybe trite or, um, you know, maybe a little incredible, but there's a sense of underlying mission in all these institutions that actually motivates and drives people. And there's great, again, academic research on that out of Yale and Wharton um, that shows that if you give people a meaningful mission, they do tremendous, amazing work. And if you give them freedom, they're actually even more productive. That's the, that's the secret. That's
0: the core. It's not the lava lamps. It's not the foosball tables. Now, you've mentioned a number of times academic research. Um, and, and I sometimes wonder, and I know some of my students sometimes feel that um, academic research and the real world are parallel universes, but very much comes through in your book that you, um, you make real use of academic research. Could you just tell us a bit about that?
1: Yeah, so we, um, it's funny, we, um, the initial model when we sort of built people operations was uh, we wanted to hire three different profiles, traditional HR people, um, consultants from the top management consultancies because they're great at problem structuring and influencing change management, and a third of the people with PhDs in analytic fields, so org psych, industrial organizations, as well as physics, statistics, and so on, because I really wanted us to prove that this stuff we were doing actually worked, and to know for certain if it didn't. And the way to do that is you actually need sort of academic quality rigor. You need science to demonstrate this stuff. And then after a couple years of that, We actually created a team called our People Innovation Lab. And we've got a couple teams like this. And they decided to hold a summit. And they invited a bunch of academics. And we very deliberately targeted pre-tenure academics uh, and people who hadn't quite sort of hit prominence uh, because our hypothesis was they'd be hungrier and more interested and more willing to, like, come out to Google and spend two days with us just brainstorming and making stuff up. Um, And we learned a tremendous amount. And we go again and again back to academia because there's, you know, Stuff works, basically. Um, There's a lot of fascinating, really compelling work, and uh, it's informed a lot of a lot of what we do.
0: Can you can you give us an example?
1: Yeah, so um, I mean, the mission stuff is one example, but most recently, uh, maybe three years ago, uh, there was again. I can't remember the university, and I know that's everything. Like that's a huge faux pas for me not to be able to cite the professor and the study, and you know, I may as well be like you know. Spitting on someone's grave like it's an awful academic faux pas. The, um, there was research out of some place, credible. Um, and what they found, they did the following experiment. They sent out um, identical resumes, and um, all they did was change the name on the resume. This was done in the States. And on half, half the resumes, they had white-sounding names, Caucasian-sounding names, and on the other half, African-American-sounding names. And what they found was that if you have an African-American-sounding name, and everything else is the same, you have to send out 50% more resumes to get an interview than if you have a white sounding name. And this got covered in the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or some paper and I read it and I turned back to our team and I said, oh my God, is this happening here? And so because we have the, the analytics chops to do this, we ran the analysis on all our applications. We, we didn't see any evidence of it. So big sigh of relief. But it provoked this conversation where we said, where else are we seeing manifestations of this, this unconscious bias? And so about three years ago, we developed a program around unconscious bias. We've rolled it out to over 30,000 of our employees. It's now part of the orientation every new hire gets. And the underlying thesis is that most people are not overtly sexist, racist, homophobic, ageist, what have you. Most people just unconsciously, subconsciously, we like people like us. Which means you're a little less welcoming to people who are different. And our work isn't done. But it's become this very vital part of the fabric of the company and conversation. And later this year, we'll be putting out more on that. Um, but it started with this very academic piece of research. And it led to this, I mean, it's too soon to say transformation, but it's the early stages of this real transformation, how we think about gender and ethnicity and physical ability and neurological ability in the company. It's been profound.
0: So do you think by, by um, you know, using techniques like this, you can actually uh, change a corporate culture?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. It's interesting because we're, we're a very bottoms-up culture. So another reason people come to Google is because, you know, there's a tremendous amount of freedom. The problem is as soon as you tell people there's a lot of freedom, and it's not infinite freedom, they come in and go like, oh, what do you mean? You know, I, I have to wear pants to work. That's not, it's not infinite freedom. Um, we actually, our dress code, our literally our dress code is um, you can wear whatever you want, but you must wear pants. Because um, we learned that one the hard way. Um, LAUGHTER in the early years, Halloween at Google was a very dicey, dicey <laughs> proposition. Um, but it's, it's about giving people that freedom and that opportunity and, and then making sure great things happen as a result.
0: Now, you're a, a, a top HR person, and yet you, your own career is not a conventional HR-type career. Um, and you talked a, a bit about that a, a moment ago as well. Could you, could you just say you know, what the benefits of, um, of following a non-standard career path have been for you? So, uh,
1: yeah, so I've, I've um, just for context, I worked as a waiter. I, I've been working in you know, one way or another since I was 14. So I, um, I, you know, taught summer school. I taught in Japan. I worked as a waiter. I did some little acting. Um, uh, I started a nonprofit. I worked at a small company. I worked at a big company. Like, a whole mishmash of kind of random things um, in, for a variety of reasons. But what I found was that, and what I've always believed, is that the most interesting insights come from the intersection of fields. And the way you find those insights is by having some expertise across lots of different fields. And so, you know, when I made the decision to go into human resources, I was a consultant at McKinsey and Company. And I looked in the alumni database, 6,000 alumni at the time, only one was in human resources. And I thought, well, you know, I have an MBA from a fancy school, and I'm a McKinsey trained consultant. Maybe if I enter this field, I'll have more impact more quickly. Because um, the, the economic argument is that, if you're in the marketing positioning is that you want to be differentiated in the marketplace. And if everyone else has a conventional linear, I'm going to be an expert in one thing path, you know, am I better off trying to compete with you know, the 100,000 MBAs who graduate each year and McKinsey consultants and what have you, who all want to be CEOs, or go this other path and try to have impact sooner? And you know, my reward was, three years after that decision, I got this call from Google, you know, do you want to come lead what became known as people operations? Um, and I think it does help me. I, I do have a different perspective than somebody who's just grown up in the field as a result of the training.
0: And do you think all HR departments should uh, you know, learn this lesson and adopt um, change the way that HR functions are organized? Yes. Yeah, um,
1: and it's and I hope it doesn't come across as hubris, but I think um, So two things one is um, when I was so I went to GE because um, I wanted to, Adam McKinsey, I was like, I want to. What are the best places to learn about HR? Because I have no idea how to do this stuff. And it was GE and Pepsi at the time. And I cold-called called four executives at each of those places, and one called me back, a woman named Annabaya, um, and she introduced me to somebody. And six weeks later, I started at GE. And um, and what I learned is that. Then I, I sort of, you know. You get recruit, Once you're out in the real world, you get recruiting calls once in a while, and I got interviewed by uh, some insurance company who was looking for an HR person, and they were so deeply offended that I had this aspiration of someday being a head of HR, because they said, you've only been doing this for a few years, you know, you have, sure, you were a McKinsey consultant, startup, and nonprofit, but you've only been in HR three years. The hubris that you might one day see yourself in a job like mine, or my boss's job, like you're going to need to pay your dues, that's a dumb thing to say. <laughs> Because, I mean, as is true of every person in this room, we could put any people, anyone in this room, anyone who attends this university, we could put them in a job where the managers are saying they need 10 more, 15 years more experience. And because of the assessment and screening you do, you'll be fine. They'll do great things. Right? Yeah, there'll be some tough stuff and they'll learn a lesson, but they can ask other people. 99% of the time, it'll be fine. But. All of us, including HR departments, are narrow-minded in that we say somebody has to look a certain way and have a certain set of experiences. The reality is if you're hiring people who are bright and conscientious and able to learn and have a low enough ego, they'll do amazing things. And the HR profession, um, you know, the the evidence that it needs to change in terms of composition and, and hiring profile is that increasingly companies are giving my kind of job to people from outside the profession. So Microsoft just named somebody who was a consultant who you know, rose up through the sales organization. Target Targets, uh, their head of HR is a former lawyer. Uh, UPS, a shipping firm, former lawyer. Um, so the HR people are actually being crowded out of their own profession because they don't have enough breadth.
0: Mm. Yeah, very interesting. Um, now, I guess there's a few people in the room at the moment who are probably looking for jobs. Um, I can't believe that. Could, could you... Um, what's your best advice to a new college graduate out on the job market? Um, can you give them a few tips? Yeah,
1: so um, best advice. So first of all, um, actually, so this isn't pandering. Um, I was going to say read my LinkedIn post, but just for the record. So I'm donating all the money from the book to charity. So this is, I w- this is not about me like lining my pockets. I've got a day job. Google treats me well. This is all purely about like, actually wanting to put good stuff out there. Um, So on LinkedIn, I posted a bunch of very detailed things about how to write a resume, how to interview. But in a nutshell, um, if you're in this room, I presume you have some connection to the school. So figure out what kind of companies you want to work for. Go to the Career Center and look at the resumes of people who now work at those jobs. And look at the language and the way they write the resumes. Because the first thing is you want to get noticed. And the whole point of a resume is to stand out. So there's a right and a wrong way to write resumes. Again, there's more online, but the brief version is... Take a look at what other people who are successful getting the kind of jobs you want to have done. And number two, um, every bullet point on your resume should have the following format. It should say, accomplished X by doing Y as measured by Z. Because most resumes just say, grew sales by 20%. Well, on what base? And how hard was it? And how did you do it? So by adding that detail, you actually cause your resume to stand out. Then when it comes to interviewing, assuming you get the interview, um, you can anticipate almost every question you're going to get. Like, what what are interview questions you're all going to get? Anybody? Why do you want the job? What's your biggest flaw? Why do, you why do you want the job? Where are you next three years? Where are you next three years? Easy, right? Like, and thank you for participating. But these people aren't like smarter at interviewing than the rest of you, right? Like these are these are like maybe they are, maybe they are. Um, so you can anticipate that most people don't bother to do that. So they go into an interview and someone says well, greatest strength, greatest weakness, where do you see yourself, why this company, and you actually have to think about it. Write down the 20 questions, practice your answers, and then you go into the interview ready for 90% of what's gonna happen. You can devote your energy to adapting to the interviewer. Did they like me? Are they leaning in? Are they not? Are they, what's their body language telling me? Are there, is there a digression I should go down? Is there some personal connection I can make based on what's in their office? Because most of interviewing is confirmation bias. You walk into the room, they shake your hand, and they've made an impression of you. And the rest of the interview, without their realizing it, is a subconscious attempt to confirm that hypothesis about who you are, that snap judgment. And so you can fix that, you can cheat that, by connecting with them in some way that's unrelated to the content of the interview. And the way you do that is by being ready for their questions and being ready to digress. So that's what I would do. And that's what I did. And, and sorry, last thing on that is, when I was in business school, the, the, the credential here is, in addition to the Google side, My first year of business school, is business school here one year or two? Uh, It
0: depends. Okay. (laughs) That's the LSE answer. That's a good answer, okay. So it was two years where I went,
1: and um, the first year I dropped for four companies, I got zero interviews, I barely got an internship at the end of the summer, or at the beginning of the summer. Um, So the next year I really focused myself, I applied to 11 companies. Um, After interviewing with the first five I had seven offers because two of them made offers for multiple locations. And at that point, I, I stopped interviewing because I, it, you, know, you take seats away from your, your classmates. Um, but I actually spent a lot of time figuring out how to win this game, this total DS game of interviewing. Um, and it's because so many people do it so poorly that if you're strategic about it, you can totally game the system and get whatever job you
0: want. Good. Last question from me, and then I'm going to open it to the audience. Um, and just back to your book... Um, what, what, what do you hope to achieve? What impact do you want your book to have? Um, I want my mom to be proud.
1: is, is kind of number one. Um, and I actually, so you, you don't have the benefit of this, but on, so on the UK edition, the World English edition, they have some very nice you know, bullet points and quotes. On the US edition, the very bottom quote is, um, it says, this is a boring book. Annabelle Bach, age five. <laughs> so I want Annabelle, my five-year-old, to actually like, enjoy the book. Because um, right now she thinks it's pretty boring. Um, but I also, I mean, and, and this, you know, I hope this doesn't come across as hubris, but work, work sucks for too many people. And it's just heartbreaking. And I've had, I mean, I've had like a lifetime of awful managers, and I've worked in like delis, and I've worked in fancy places. And in every place, there's just a lot of misery and unhappiness. And, you know, and I've been lucky, right? I mean, I've actually had a relatively good jobs.
2: Have they got um, microphones upstairs? Have they got
3: microphones?
1: <laughs> oh, they, they do have microphones. <laughs> <laughs> I was really building to something. takes away from So anyway, I want work to get better. There's kind of, want we'll work to get better. Yeah.
0: Good, lovely. Well, let's open some questions, um, which we know the microphones okay. work. Well, we know um, there's one upstairs. <laughs> and we know there's one upstairs. Carsten, would you just like to
3: introduce yourself and uh, ask your question? Yeah, my name is Carsten Swanson. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Management. So I'm... Oops. Whoa, we got feedback. Someone one of Sandy's colleagues. Um, I've been interested in the future of work for quite a while, and I'm just wondering if you could give some comments on what you see as the future of work, and in particular looking at the issue of social mobility. A lot of people have talked about the problem that you used to be able to be sort of averagely educated and get an average job in manufacturing, and then you could become the plant manager. Or you could There was social mobility at work. I think, with all due respect, people who start... Uh, without a PhD, without a master's degree or, or any kind of college education at Google, they, they will not end up, there, there will be some glass ceilings along the way, there will be, there is that across all the tech mm-hmm. industries. So how, how do you see that in terms of uh, human capital or human resource development?
1: Yeah, actually, I think it's a real issue. Um, there's actually a book review in The Economist talking about um, a book that was just written looking at this question. It basically said, like, the way to, the book review summarized it as, well, the way to penetrate the elite corporations is to go to an elite school. That's kind of like, well, good luck with that, right? Like, yeah. you know, if you could do that, you can. Um, so at Google, what we actually found, um, we looked at this. We used to care a lot about where you went to school and what your grades were. Um, we don't care at all anymore. So sorry. Uh, all of you who are here, um, I'm sure this LSE thing is a perfectly reasonable institution. Um, <laughs> but we we realized it actually doesn't predict performance. And if you think about it, like in the U.S. at least, only a third of Americans actually end up graduating from college. Forget about graduate school. and so And talent is actually normally distributed. So performance is not, but like the raw capability seems to be. And it'd just be madness to overlook two-thirds of the people in the country or, or on the planet. So we actually, quite a few years ago, stopped looking at grades, test scores, GPAs, things like that entirely. And if you actually look at um, sort of, I don't know, our top 20 executives, um, there's, there's a number of people there who dropped out of college, who never finished. And I'm not talking about how Sergey Brin didn't finish his PhD. I mean, these are people who, like, got a year into undergraduate, and were like, you know what, I just want to go build stuff. Um, that said... Um, that's a fairly unique perspective. You know, other firms I worked for care tremendously. Um, although there's, there's a global investment bank, one of the top couple. I was talking to their head of their investment banking division, and he said they found the same thing, that uh, if you take the top 10% from a sort of a state, this is, again, U.S. parlance, so forgive me, but um, we go to a state school, which is sort of lower tier, compared to the um, average folks from your Harvards, your Yales, your what have you, the state school people do much better. Because not only do they have the same intellectual aptitude, but they they want to work. They have this grit. They've overcome adversity. Um, So what I think will happen, I think what will happen is over time you'll end up with two kinds of company. Um, Actually, three kinds of work setting. The sort of atomization of work that's enabled by the Internet and things like that. That has pros and cons. Um, You'll have companies that are Google-like, and we're not unique. I mean, there's Wegmans, there's John Lewis, where um, you have a very different employment experience, and it's independent of where you went to school. Uh, because the most talented people on the planet are increasingly not just mobile, but findable. Like, we can find them anywhere they are in the world. And they're going to move around and and vote, and they're going to end up in these kinds of organizations. But the other model that I really think is going to persist is this awful, grind people up, chew them up, spit them out model, because there's a lot of people who are desperate for work, and you can make a lot of money by treating people incredibly poorly. Um, And I think it's going to be... I think if you look at it from an economic perspective, um, you know, there's countries where it's going to take you know, 50 years for the economy to evolve to a point where you actually have like, you know, the majority of companies think, caring about how people think versus lifting people out of subsistence. So it's a very, very real issue. Um, to your question about why in the book, you know, I hope people start hiring like we do. And looking at those factors instead of this total garbage about where you went to school and what you had access to because your parents taught you this is what you should do or because that's what your peer group did or what have you. Thank you.
0: Okay. Um, let's take the gentleman with the blue jumper. And if you could just, again, introduce yourself um, and ask your question. Is, that, is a jumper the same as a jacket? Uh, that's a jacket, <laughs> not a jumper. Oh, okay. Sorry. Uh, I'm, I'm learning every minute. I'll talk to you about cricket later. (laughs) Dave Carlin, working reward at Unilever. Um, I want to ask you about um, why it is that companies have got away using HR practices which aren't evidence-based for so long. And I guess
3: what can we learn from that that we can use going forward to maybe apply some of it?
1: Yeah. Um, Did everyone hear the question? Or they don't care. They're like, "Ah, whatever, I didn't hear it. I don't care. Uh, I'm just kidding. Um, the, um, I, you know, here's my theory of the case, I don't know if this is true or not, um, but I was a GE after Jack Welch, so I joined GE about a year or two after, and so I watched what happened. Jack Welch focused on two things. He focused on Six Sigma and talent. People stuff. Jeff Immelt had, didn't focus on either of those, he focused on other things, and you could feel a palpable difference in the company, even in the few years I was there and how it sort of operated and focused on people. Um, so what I came up with was that I think by the time you, you get the CEO job because you have a skill set that applies to whatever problem the company needs fixed at the moment, right? And every CEO has a major, if you will, right? They're a cost cutter or they're a growth CEO or they're, you know, they're an operational CEO, what have you. Very few CEOs have a major or a minor in talent or people. And so they focus on this stuff, but having talked to literally hundreds and hundreds of CEOs um, in various fora, they don't know what to look for from a head of HR. So they kind of go in an interview and say, Oh, what do you do? What companies have you been in? How's it gone? Da, da. And they hire somebody who's going to do the same thing that's happened in every other place. So the CEOs don't focus on it because it's not their major, it's not why they're in the job. And they don't know what to look for. And so you end up with a bunch of HR people who kind of do the same thing again and again. Um, what's been kind of gratifying and, and distressing, uh, but more gratifying than not, is if you look at the tech industry, um, the heads of HR for some very cool companies like uh, Uber and Jawbone and Square and um, uh, Pinterest, I mean, there's a whole bunch of, even Yahoo now, all are people who came out of the people operations team, which I think is thrilling um, because they're now going and doing their own version of it. And there's an analytic component and there's a sort of equality component. Um, and it's great to see that kind of diaspora and changing our practices. But I think the root cause is, CEOs don't think of it, and their HR people, they don't know what to look for in the HR people, so they end up with, you know, what
0: everyone else has. So is there a question upstairs? Yeah, gentlemen. Yeah.
2: I actually have two small questions, if I may. You've got
0: introduce first- yourself. Sorry? I to introduce you. Sam. Oh,
2: sorry. Um, my name is Sam. Sam practice But uh, I just wanted to uh, ask, um, so what made you go into HR? Like, uh, why didn't you go into it earlier or, uh, like, w- how did you get into it? Like, was it your passion that you didn't realize that didn't develop for you later? Like, wow, how, Can you tell me a little about that, please?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so the... Um it was two things. One was, you know, sort of when the moment came, I realized I could differentiate myself in the market and move more quickly. But the deeper issue, the deeper trigger was, uh, you know, I was four years into McKinsey. You know, I had clients going on all over the place. I was doing well. There were, I think, four people left for my cohort. So I like, you know, things were looking good for me. Um, and I realized that every job I'd had, I'd had some frustration with the leadership around me. And it was because of the difference in the values they espoused and what they actually delivered. And it just killed me that they would say, we put our people first. You know, please be here till 2 in the morning and I'm not going to send you, you know. Um, And again and again I saw this and it just, it drove me crazy. And part of it was, you know, youth and hubris, right, Um, that it bugged me so much. Uh, You know, you may, I guess, care less about that as you get older. You're like, ah, that's the way the world works, whatever. Um. But it really, really bugged me, and I realized, you know, I first went through getting corporate strategy offers, which every McKinsey person does, then I went and got VC, venture capital offers, because that's the next thing you do, and I randomly got a recruiting call for an HR job. And I basically said, you know, no, unless you pay some exorbitant salary, and they were like, can you come down next week and meet with us? I was like, hey, maybe I should think about it. Um, and um, it caused me to think back about the quality of leaders I'd been exposed to, and I thought, okay, I can either... Try to someday be one of these leaders, and maybe if I become a CEO, have influence. If I can become a great CEO, and sort of, or I could much earlier have a more diffuse influence over a much wider set of people by going down the HR path. So I rolled those dice. Um, and, you know, I think I, I got lucky, quite frankly. Um, so my advice would be if you're thinking about a, f- a career in HR, move into it a little later in your career after you've gotten some experience outside the profession, and find a company that actually is interested in taking a chance on on people with a different background, and you will contribute more and grow more quickly and have more impact than any other path.
2: Just one question following that. Just, um, you know, some people, like, I would like to go in, into an, uh, HR, for example, You know, but some people say, oh, like, you know, like, all you do, like, probably is going to be, like, payroll or, like, very administrative stuff, and it's not really, like, a growing sort of future. Like, you're, you're helping other people grow and stuff. Like, what are your... Th- you know thoughts about that and
1: yeah for the for the first eighteen months I was embarrassed to tell my friends like I, I really like because it it was such like because it's not it's not where the cool kids used to go um, so that's true uh, but the content of the work is different so picking your company is really 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 important um, because the content varies depending where you are um, and in Silicon Valley what you see is there's actually a ton of startups in this space focusing actually on hiring because that's really hard to get right um, so it's it's emerging as a is a legit, credible, amazing field. But the key is, pick the company. Because um, some companies, it's very hidebound and traditional. and others, you're going to be doing really cool, amazing things right from the get-go. I
0: think there's another question up, up there in the balcony.
2: Hi. Okay. Hi, my name is Lola. Um, I have two questions, actually. So my first question we were talking about the unconscious bias, right? And we we're talking about how in interviewing, it's really a confirmation of the bias mm-hmm. that um, the person has. So I'm wondering, in that case, how, what strategies would we use to make sure you're presenting yourself in a way that doesn't confirm any unconscious bias that the other person has? Um, really, a really complicated yeah, question. Yeah, that's a great think, question. Um, sorry? <laughs> <laughs> um, and my second question is about social cultural factors. So um, we're talking about Google, but in a very American context. Now, when we expand Google across the world as a global organization, how does this work out in other cultures where really hierarchy is key? So how, how do you translate this type of um, atmosphere into those type of cultures? Thank
1: you. Very thoughtful questions. Um, on the first one. On well, the first one, it's really hard how to sort of. It's really hard as a candidate to rewire the interview because the people you're facing are going to have this bias no matter what, and um, and you can't sort of confront them with it, right? Um, so this isn't going to be a deeply thoughtful answer, um, and it's going to be I, I, if I'm if I'm very blunt, um, it's an unjust, unfair system. The way it works in most organizations, there's bias in it, and the one thing you have unilateral control over is how well you perform. Um, And I got great career advice once where somebody said, you know, um, always over-deliver because then they have no choice but to reward you. And it was interesting that he used the word they because he recognized the implicit power dynamic between an employee and management, right? Or a candidate and an interviewer. So you have to recognize that that bias exists in most institutions. Um, We try to remove it as much as we can. I can talk about that if people have questions. and this sucks. This absolutely sucks as an answer. But I think the two things are try to find a connection, a point of commonality. And second, you just have to be that much better. And I know that's like that's a total unfair, awful answer, but it, I'm trying to recognize like the reality of a very broken system. And the way you get better in interviewing is just practice. Because most people don't. Like Even though I've told everyone here, maybe one or two people are going to do it. When I was in business school my second year, I literally wrote out the 20 questions I thought I was going to get, and I wrote out three answers for each one. Because you want, if you meet two interviewers, you want to tell them a different answer for each attribute, because one may like it, the other may not. And you want them at the end of the day to be able to argue on your behalf, right? So Sally may say, I didn't think Lazlo was very good, but Kim will say, well, actually he told me this different story, which showed the skill. You want to manage that as much as possible. So my roommate would come in, and I'd literally be sitting on the futon, like saying, well, my greatest strength is my ability, and he, like, thought I was absolute nuts, right? <laughs> but it works. So you, that's, in the short term, that's the only way. Um, in terms of the socio-cultural issues, um, Japan's an interesting example. Because um, we, we have offices all over the world. We have more than 2,000 people here in London um, and thousands of people across Europe. But Japan, uh, we had an issue where um, we'd been running the office with a certain hiring profile that was very uh, in accordance with our culture. And then our sales leadership said, you know what, we just need some people who are very traditional because that's what's going to get the sale. So we spent a couple of years hiring very traditional people. Um, and, you know, I don't know if there was some revenue benefit or not, but what I do know is the office became very unpleasant for women. And what things that would happen, which are very typical in Japanese companies, so, you know, if we're all in a meeting and there's half a dozen men and a woman, somebody would turn to the woman and say, oh, and could you get us some tea? And it's, of course, her job in the culture to go up and get the tea. And um, we heard stories about this, and I went to visit our Tokyo office, and people told me about it. And we changed it. We changed our hiring profile. We stopped hiring very traditional people. And um, we had it on all hands. Every week we do something called TGIF. It's on all hands. You can ask anything. And one of, the, one of our Japanese employees said, you know, when it comes to national culture versus Google culture, who wins? And I said, look, when it's holidays, when it's things about, like, how you want to decorate the office, national culture, fine. When it's how we comport ourselves and how we treat each other, the Google culture wins. Absolutely. Unequivocally. And if that's an issue... That's okay, we're not judging the culture. You know, there's lots of companies you can work for. But we believe everyone should be treated the same, regardless of what you look like, sound like, anything, right? If, that's, if you don't feel that way, that's okay. It's actually not okay. But you, you just don't have to be here, and we'll go on our way. So that's how it works for us.
0: Good. Uh, let's come over to this side. Uh, gentleman in the purple jumper. Thanks.
1: And if we could, I don't want to impose too much, but there was a woman with a question in the back, too. I just okay. want to be yeah.
0: sensitive to that. Um, so it's Ed Weatherall from Visual DNA. Um, you're talking quite a bit there about values, culture. How much do you go to sort of measuring someone's values? Because if you're going to cheat an interview, you know, you can read the, the website and say, okay, you need to come across as benevolent and all these things. But how do you guys go about actually understanding someone's values?
1: Well, so the ultimate measurement of whether the stuff is working is really how many people we have to fire. Um, and we find we have to fire very, very few people. It's a very high-performing culture, and uh, very few people end up getting fired. So we think we're pretty good at it. Um, the way we assess values on the interview process, we, we look for four attributes. Cognitive ability, emergent leadership, and that's as distinct from traditional leadership. So we don't care if you were president of a club or captain of a team or vice president at any place. We care that when you see a problem, you step in and help fix it. And then just as importantly, you relinquish power and let somebody else step in when... They're best suited. To do. Yes, I will do. Um, we, we test for um, cultural fit, people call it googliness, uh, but for us cultural fit is not do you look like us, it's intellectual humility and conscientiousness. Okay. And then uh, the last and least important Why thing is actual expertise, <laughs> like do you know how to do the job? Because we figure if you have the first three you can, yeah. we, you can figure out the last one. Um, so and the specific technique we use to assess these things um, and we don't assess values in terms of you know are you liberal or conservative or what have you but we use what are called structured interview questions which is a super boring methodology which is part of why companies and individuals hate using it, but it's basically give me an example of a difficult problem you solved and then we drill down into that and the interviewer dutifully writes all that up then writes their assessment of it and then the hiring committee m- makes an assessment of not just your answer but the quality of the interviewer's assessment of you uh, we feed that back, but that actually gives us a pretty good assessment of the person's sort of drive and assessment, and, and uh, values, and whether we think, you know, they'll, they'll work out in the place, and whether they'll bring something new and distinctive. So you saw
0: somebody? Up- yeah, if that's okay, the yeah. the young lady.
1: Hi, thank you. Um, I'm Fizana, I'm a physician at University College Hospital, and um, I thought what you said about talent was really interesting, and the kind of rewarding the, your most talented people, and The problem that we have in healthcare, especially in the UK, is we don't have the financial resources to, first of all, probably attract um, that kind of talent and also keep them motivated um, within that space. How important do you think the non-financial factors are, which I know Google is quite famous for, and what are they more specifically? So I actually think the non-financial factors are way more important than the financial ones. Um, I'll say even if you have a limited budget, it's important to differentiate. Because there are differences, and your best physicians... I mean, I'm sure if you polled people on on your floor of your department and said, who are the best physicians, they'd probably name the top... There'd be a lot of overlap, right? And even if it's only a few percentage points more, if that's all that's permitted, they should get more. Um, And the way you fund that is you take it away from the worst. You don't give them zero, but, you know... And the worst people will get a little disgruntled, and they'll go do something else, and that's okay. Um, But it's it's a thorny question, because... um, Actually, what research shows again and again, academic research, uh, as well as our own, is that the connecting people to something meaningful is the single biggest motivator. Um, so um, Amy Rosinski uh, did a piece of work. She's a professor at Yale University. And she, um, she looked at doctors and lawyers. She looked at janitors and housekeepers, sort of a whole range of professions. And what she found was a third of people in each profession, it was, it was kind of bizarre, but roughly a third in each profession are there to make a buck a third are there because it's a kind of game. They want to win. They want to get promoted. And a third connect to a mission. And the people who connect to a mission are actually higher performing. And she did this really cool piece of work where she went and interviewed housekeepers in a coma ward. So the patient's totally non-responsive. And the housekeepers were taking the art off the walls and moving it between rooms. And she went and interviewed this particular woman. It was a woman. And she said, what are you doing? And this woman said, with no education, right? She said, you know what? I think, I think it might help this person recover. I think they're not responding, but you know maybe in some small way, changing things makes them happier or will be good for them. And then Amy said, you get fired for this. Your job is to change bedpans. It's not to change the way the room is set up. And this woman told her, I don't care because I'm doing something good for them. And in a whole bunch of contexts, uh, Adam Grant from the University of uh, Pennsylvania's Wharton School looked at uh, call center workers, he looked at lifeguards, he looked at uh, college students being paid to edit essays. And what he found again and again is when you connect people's work to meaning, to a mission, to the outcome, the way you're changing someone's life, no matter what the job is, because who would think of connecting janitorial work to meaning, right? He found that performance improved anywhere between, I mean, the range was 20% for sort of lifeguards, um, which is kind of not that much. I mean, you'd hope lifeguards would really care. Um, But for the call center workers, he saw a 500% improvement in weekly money raised by connecting their work to something meaningful. So I think that's the most important. And in medicine, you have that. The tough part is there's just so much bureaucracy and repetition that it's hard to keep that top of mind. And so one of the things we've done with our employees at Google is we've, we've been talking a lot and practicing gratitude. And this is work done by a guy named Sean Acor. Um, and what he does is, he basically says, if you can, he works on happiness, in the field of happiness. And he says, if you can spend two minutes a day expressing gratitude, you're happier, you're more productive, you're more effective. And the mechanism we've been dabbling with at Google is, spend two minutes a day. We're doing this actually in our, in our London office. Um, and a bunch of Googlers just decided to do it. Write a thank you note to somebody. And that two minutes a day over 21 days has a measurable impact. And it causes you to be grateful for what's around you. But the thank you note is cool because they then thank you back. So and they think you're the best person in the world, right? So you, you know, you send notes to twenty one people, all of a sudden twenty-one different people love you, right? And your experience of work gets
0: better. Good. Let's the gentleman in the back. If you keep your hand up then the mic will come to you.
3: Um, thank you very much. Um, uh, the name's um, Ewan Grant. I'm a former uh, government intelligence analyst, but not in the intelligence services. Um, and um, I, I, I can speak a lot to some of the points you've made. Um, one person who certainly would is the present um, head of our domestic intelligence security service because he was the person who was brought into our organization to sort out what were essentially HR problems with a big capital P. Um, My question is based on your several comments about cognitive ability and intellectual humility. Um, Have you been invited during your trip to Britain to um, address any uh, bankers or members of parliament? (laughs) And if Um, not, why not? (laughs)
1: Um, I know there's a dinner I'll be having where there will be bankers present, um, but I don't know if there was an agenda behind that or not. Um, no, I just I go where I'm welcome. So
0: Good. Uh, yeah. Uh,
3: hello. Uh, hi, my name is Edvard. I'm a graduate student in organizational behavior, so I have a two-part
1: question. Uh, I'm joining a startup as employee number 11, and they're hiring tons of people. So uh, how do you preserve culture when you have, like, they are going to be 60 people by this quarter next year. Uh, How do you preserve culture in the face of growth? Uh, Second part is, how do you feel about sites like Glassdoor that give you insights into
3: actually, like, hiring practices in companies? Thank you.
1: Okay, so on the startup, um, most important thing you can do is hire by committee. Um, Larry and Sergey started this right from the start. There was in our early offices, so this predates me, um, but the uh, there was a ping-pong table. You'd come in, that's where you'd interview, and at the end of the day, people would sit down and they'd discuss you. Um, hire by committee, because then you focus on quality and you, you maintain that, and do not compromise on that. Uh, second thing I'd say is if there's a cultural flag, and I don't mean they're, like, different, right? I mean, if there's a worry about, um, I mean, in our case, arrogance or... Um, Arrogance is a good example. If somebody comes across as they might be too arrogant, we would, you know, we're more likely to reject someone for that than for almost any other reason, right? Um, So figure out what is core to the culture and screen for that viciously, ferociously, without compromise. You will find that slows down your hiring considerably. In Google's history, our biggest constraint to growth has always been the ability to hire people, Um, but it's the most important thing you have because once you lose that, you it's almost impossible to get back and when you're 10 people, 20, 50 people, one person, a toxic person, has this huge, huge effect. So guard against it. And if you accidentally hire somebody who's bad, fire them right away. Whatever it costs, whatever the pa- it's worth it. Get them, get them out. Um, in terms of glass door, um, eh, you know, people are free to share whatever they want. Um, I think um, you know sometimes the data is accurate, sometimes it's not. Um, but I don't think it's a bad thing for people to be generally comparing notes. Um, I think as a reader, the thing to watch out for is there's probably some sample bias who's sharing in who's sharing what, right? So you tend to get sort of things at either end of the emotional spectrum. Um, and it's hard to, you're likely to overindex on sort of what people say um, and not. So take it with a grain of salt, um, maybe a big grain of salt. But, uh, you know, it's, it's always, it's, if nothing else, interesting and salacious and kind of fun to see what's out there. We've got time for
0: one more question, I think. Um, the, the lady in the middle there, you're the lucky lady. Sorry.
2: Hello. My name is Dara. I want to find out how you've used um, your people analytics team, how you've used big data to basically improve the manager's um, work, basically also in other sections as well with your training and coaching. Basically, big data is such a big buzz right now. So how are you using big data analytics in your work?
1: Yeah, so we, we try to measure and test everything we can. Uh, The best example, um, and this one, this was written up. You can Google it. Um, It's in there as well, but you can also just look it up. We did this piece of work called Project Oxygen. And the idea behind Project Oxygen was our engineers thought managers were not necessary, uh, or at best a necessary evil, because, you know, traditional manager just gets in your way, slows you down. And so we did this study where we tried to figure out what made managers most effective. And we looked at the axes of uh, team performance and manager assessment. And what we found is when you do this sort of two-by-two, two, um, there actually wasn't a big difference. Because most of our managers are actually reasonably decent. And most of the performance, right, you know, kind of clusters because the performance ratings are kind of, you know, follow along a distribution. And we didn't find anything that useful. So then we looked at the top quartile of the top quartile and the bottom quartile of the bottom quartile. And there we actually found substantial differences in team performance and in manager happiness and so on. So we then went, and so that was... Math. Then we went and uh, we did a qualitative set of interviews, which were coded and rigorously analyzed. So it wasn't just like random interviewing, but there was like a deep, deep academic quality methodology to find out what the managers did differently. We distilled that down into eight attributes um, that predict success and three that don't. We then wanted to run the experiment because it's one thing to describe it, but that's correlation. You want causal relationships as well. And We didn't want to randomly mix people across teams, which is the correct way to do it, but what we found was that people actually were switching teams on their own. So we could control for individual performance and we could see people move from top, top quartile, um, teams and bottom, bottom, and we watched what happens as they moved around. And indeed, we found that when a mediocre person moved to one of these better teams, their performance actually improved and the opposite was true as well. So from that, we then developed a survey where every six months, every manager's team Fills out an anonymous survey, which rates the manager on these attributes. And then we flexed them and added and taken things away over time. We then went to the managers and said, okay, manager, here's the percent favorable in aggregate. And on each of these questions, your team is in terms of rating you. And here's where that compares to the distribution. So when we started doing this, the average team was sort of, I think, 57% favorable on their managers. And at a starting point, that's all we did. Because to this question of incentives, um, about hospitals and incentives, once you t- as, as you well know, once you tie something to an extrinsic incentive, it causes all this weird behavior. So we just said, here's where you are. And what we found was without doing anything further, managers wanted to get better because nobody wants to be in the bottom quartile. And so the quality of management, the percent favorable, went from something like 57% to 87% over three years without us doing anything. We then designed courses around each of these attributes. And people would go through the course, and we'd again you know, have a control group where people wouldn't have the course and people would go through the course. And then we'd see their performance on these tests, these upward feedback scores later. And we found that if you take our manager as a coach course, for example, which is a two-hour course, you actually have an average seven-point improvement on that particular dimension of our set of attributes. Um, So that's that's an illustration. But we do this stuff all the time. And it's cool.
0: It's really fun. Thank you. Well, that's a very nice note to to finish on, ladies and gentlemen. I'm afraid we've run out of time. The the copies of Laszlo's book, here it is, are for sale outside. Um, I can recommend it. I'm enjoying reading it. I'm halfway through, but I only got it on Friday. The
1: the second half is so much better
0: (laughs) than the first half. Um, And Laszlo's kindly going to be here for 10 or 15 minutes signing copies of of books if anybody wants to buy it. But um, Laszlo, I'd just like to to thank you for coming to the LSE. Uh, As I say, I'm enjoying your book, and I've really enjoyed our conversation. So thank Thank you very much. It is truly an honour. Thank you.